Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. In today's show, Elliot, Paul and Tim will be discussing the 3-1 victory at home to Bournemouth in the Premier League. It was a very enjoyable game of football, firstly. Um, both teams came to play, and credit goes to Bournemouth for that. A lot of teams these days come to the Emirates, try and get a point, stifle, and all that fun stuff. Or not so fun, but they actually came and attacked us. And on another day, they could have got something from the game. Not just saying that because uh, they lost and we won, but um, yeah, I thought they played really well. And uh, yeah, they're quite enjoyable to watch. So yeah, good luck to them going forward, apart from when we play them away. It was good to make a lot of changes and get a positive result because that's going to be important. Good to get back to winning ways again after three draws in a row. So that's good. Yeah, so long may long may winning continue because winning's good. Enjoy the podcast. Back after the EFL Cup game against Southampton in the midweek. And yeah, see you then. Jack Wilshire's Arsenal prevails 3-1 over Jack Wilshire's AFC Bournemouth. As Arsene Wenger, Arsenal's current manager, gets the best of Arsenal's future manager, Eddie Howe. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Strongly recommended. I am joined as ever, except for the Blast podcast, which I wasn't on, and the previous podcast, which one of them wasn't on. But as ever, I am joined by Tim. You can block him on... Nope. You can follow him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. You, you can block me if you want. I'm, I'm not precious about it. Yeah, but I apologize for the slanderous suggestion that anyone should block you because you are great at hashtag content. And as always, I am joined by Paul. You can and should block him on Twitter at Pause and in My Pants. He has recently returned to blogging. All the more reason to hit that block button. Hello, Pause. Hell yeah. Hells to the yeah. Um, okay, so uh, Francis Cochran didn't start. Granite Shacka did. So that's going to whittle this down to probably a clean 15 minutes of podcasting because we got nothing to talk about so it was a pleasure as always chatting with you guys no um in the end it was it was a i guess you'd say comfortable victory but there's a lot of meat on this bone <laughs> and i am not referring to myself um because <laughs> hang it, on hang on can it, i just yeah okay yeah, good. okay let it sink in not my bone <laughs> okay we have we have got to get started um or so, your meat for that matter well as as previously referenced it is lean it is it is a tenderloin um so <clears throat> uh yeah it was it was a start for granite shaka uh paired with elneny and we went with two more traditional wide players, I guess you'd say, with Oxley Chamberlain and Theo Walcott on the wings. Paul and I got into a little debate about that. Alexis Sanchez was, was restored to his uh, his striker position, and that is still zero Premier League starts for Olivier Giroud at center forward. Paul, any nervousness about the bet yet, or no? Not really, but nope. uh, he is he is dig, digging a massive hole on. From a plan B standpoint. Well, I imagine he's able to dig a massive hole, if you know what I mean. Um, Okay, so, Tim, let's start with you. Um, I think, despite the fact that we we got the first goal, I felt that we struggled to come to grips with the game uh, in in terms of really imposing our will in midfield and and in possession. Uh, Did you see it that way? And if so, uh, what do you attribute that to? 
Um, a little bit. I think it was a, a number of things. First of all, we made seven changes from Wednesday night, which is that's a substantial amount of changes for you know. Well, our Arson is known for his rotation, right? I mean, that's if he's known for anything, it's his heavy rotation. <laughs> well, yeah, quite <laughs> kidding. And, uh, I, so I, I think there was a lot of that in it that um, it took them a little while perhaps to get going, and um, I, I actually thought around about six or seven changes was about right because I thought the team selection was completely wrong for Paris Saint Germain. Um, if so, I had yeah. been on the podcast, you would have heard me agree with you vociferously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I think there was a little bit of that. Um, you know, perhaps from a few of them, because there were seven changes, so not many of them actually played on Wednesday night, but maybe a bit of legginess. But I think, um, actually, I, I, I've kind of observed this with Arsenal before, that actually switching around the centre-forward um, is, you know, you know how Arsenal never, ever rotates the centre-halves, which, which I think is right. Um, I think you pretty much have to do the same thing with the striker unless your strikers play in exactly the same fashion. Because I think what ends up happening is that your team becomes so accustomed to the way one of your strikers plays that it then becomes very difficult for them to go back and adjust to the other one. And um, I think we saw this a few times when Welbeck was coming into the team or Walcott was playing up front and we were still pumping long balls um, because, you know, the team's kind of um, muscle reflexes to look for Giroud in that way. And I think against PSG we saw that the team have become accustomed to the way that Alexis plays up front and the fact that he drops back into midfield, which I think is very useful for us, actually, when we've got a player like Mesut Ozil, who, um, to all intents and purposes, kind of plays in midfield, but really spends very little of his time there. Um, and so, actually, I think it's quite helpful to have someone like Alexis coming back and perhaps doing some of that work that Ozil doesn't do. So, I, I think we saw a little bit of the team coming back to grips with, with what it was. You know, we changed the midfield to, um, we, you know, we changed one of the wide men. And um, I don't know if either of you have had a, a chance to see uh, Adrian Clark's breakdown of the game, but he spoke about just how much Arsenal used the flanks in this game, like a lot, lot more than in any other game this season. Um, they went wide. And that, that tells me that that was a deliberate tactic that well, isn't that also just by default what you're going to get when well, you play two true wide players as opposed to sort of an extra midfield body with a that, Roby or That's what I thought as well. So the, I think the, the midfield two selection was surprising, but I think in a good way. I think those two played against Forest, and I thought they looked really promising, and I think they potentially match up quite nicely, particularly for a home game. Um, but the wide one, yeah, I, I mean, that would, that would have been... I thought this this team selection as a whole was more balanced. My only slight reservation was Chamberlain on the left because he's not quite that connector slash playmaker like Iwobi is. But, I mean, we've, we've got... And so part of me thought, well, we've got to accept this because, you know, I've been saying on this podcast since about April that Iwobi's a starting 11 player because he's the only player of his kind we have and we need that kind of player. But we've got to accept that we have a deficiency in our squad in one position, in my opinion, and it's that one, out wide left. And Iwobi is not ready nor physically capable of playing every game. So we're going to have to play Chamberlain, who is probably the second in line there, unless Lucas Perez you know, gets a few games there. So we get, to all intents and purposes, we're going to have to put up with that um, at regular intervals in the season. But 
well, you, you don't think that Ramsey can can play there after pretty much you know one performance in a maybe. really really tough spot, having played very little? Yeah, I, I wouldn't rule it out based on Man United. I think there was a lot more going on there that forced him very deep. I I, I think. I mean, maybe. he was he was excellent at, on the right wing at the start yeah. of last season, playing sort of the Awobi role on the flip side of the pitch. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's another option at the moment. I I call it pretty much untested because, like I say, I, I don't think Old Trafford was was a true picture of what he can bring there. So it's it's still a little bit, there's a little bit of potential chaos factor um, in that selection. But basically, none of them are really ideal because Chamberlain, you know, is a bit of a mixed bag at the best of times. So I, thought, I thought he was pretty good in this game. There were still a few lapses in concentration that concerned me, but generally pretty good. But the, the fact that we were so, so... We were spending so much of the game on the flanks and early as well. We were doing it early in the game, um, you know, that Chamberlain committed his fallback. And it seemed to me that it must have been a conscious decision to do that. And whether it was just because whether Wenger identified um, a potential flaw in Bournemouth in their fullbacks, because they both got booked very early, um, or whether he just thought, well, you know, I've really only got Walcott and um, Chamberlain available because Lucas Perez is out, Welbeck's out, Iwobi, you know, is up and down at the moment and probably needs a breather. So maybe I have to play this way. I, I don't know. It'd be really interesting to know. But mm-hmm. to, to some intent, to some extent rather, that seemed to me to be deliberate to kind of try and go attack them down the flanks. Um, and, and actually, I, I thought that worked okay. Um but in, in terms of, yeah, we did struggle to dominate the ball, although I thought both midfielders were very good. But I, I think that's also a bit of a consequence of Bournemouth are, are, are a really good team, and especially in that midfield area. I was very mm-hmm. impressed with how controlled they were with their passing and their tempo. Right. Well, let's so let's get into why that was too. Cause I, I, so, Paul, let's kind of bring into the light the, the uh, dark back chat uh, debate that we had. Now, I, I realize fully that one of the big things that changed the pattern of play in this game, and I think you'd both agree with this, and I don't know that we have to dive into it too much, was Debushi going out, who actually had started yeah. really brightly and added that overlapping player, and it really wasn't the same when Gabriel came on. But my theory on this, Paul, is simply that, as you know, and I will just il- illuminate everybody listening who doesn't care, um, that we need, because we play a two-man midfield and because Mesut Ozil is often more advanced than Alexis. In fact, his heat map for a lot of games has him as the most advanced player, and in fact, he was the most advanced player against Bournemouth. And while Alexis does drop a little deep, with two men in midfield, it's hard to control the game if you don't have somebody else in possession who can come in and add an extra body in midfield to receive passes and and help maintain possession and recycle possession and so on and so forth. And that's kind of what Iwobi has done from that left wide position where he comes in more to the half space, whereas Oxley Chamberlain likes to stay wider and isn't really going to, to help maintain possession. Um, so when you play Theo and Oxley Chamberlain, you really are two versus three in midfield if they have a true midfield three. And so I think that makes it very difficult. I think you can still, you know, uh, use people like Shaka and Mustafi to uh, play line breaking passes and sort of shortcut midfield and go straight up to the attacking players, which did happen. But it, it really does put a lot of pressure on the early phase of buildup because it's hard to, to get any real possession in midfield. So talk me through why you think 
it's okay to go with true a two-man midfield and then two natural wide players and what you saw from this game to support that. Yeah, well, I mean, I I agree with you. There's a reason we've played, if you want to call it, the Nazri role for a long time. Uh, we were maybe a little at cross-purposes in that I thought for this game and this game only, it made a lot of sense, mainly for the reasons Tim outlined in terms of <laughs> who else would you have played. I think one of your thoughts was maybe, you know, a... Ramsey type player or Ramsey from the left uh, against Bournemouth but I think when we talked about it back and forward that this was really the options he had for the day but but I could uh, rationalize it as a reasonable approach given that we were matching up against a very similar setup um, so kind of use what you got and use it well and uh, you know it, it took us a little while to get going we actually started very fast um, like the P- there were a number of parallels to the PSG game. God help us. Um, and I don't. Maybe you guys can help me work out if there's a reason there were these parallels. Um, but we used the strengths we had. We attacked down the left early with the ox. If you remember Ozil's shot on goal, that happened in like the second minute or something. Then it got a little messy. Then we found our rhythm, as I think you guys were both saying. And we got our goal, and that lasted for the best part of 10 minutes, kind of like the PSG game. Uh, we had a pretty good run until, unfortunately, they scored, but uh, or the couple of minutes leading into their goal early on in the game. We had a pretty good run in this game till we scored, and immediately, uh, I think this was, we may have all caught this, but I think a lot of people missed this in terms of discussing why we lost momentum after the goal. I mean, it was immediate. Debushi was down. Gabriel came in, lost possession a couple of times, was finding his feet, took a poor throw in, put it out for a corner. You know, that was a momentum killer. Not knocking the guy, because I think he actually did very well over the game. Um, But it killed our right side, just as Jenkinson not playing the ball forward against PSG killed our right side. Guess what our highest passing combination in both games was, position to position? Well, it was left back to uh, left wing. Left, left wing, yeah. yeah. Monreal played a ton of passes to Oxley Chamber. I think it was like 14 or 16, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And in the PSG game, same deal. It was Gibbs to Iwobi was our highest passing combination. The other interesting factor when you talk about connecting to Ozil from lower midfield, which, you know, is very much to your point rather than against it. In both games, the player we hit most often was Alexis um, by a long way. Ozil was a a far second. Now, in the PSG game, there was a lot of man-marking of Ozil. In this game, not so much. It was just Ozil went forward and Alexis dropped back. So... Kind of a lot of interesting parallels for completely different reasons that kind of panned out the same way. I agree with your overall uh, position, which is a Nazari-type player. Unfortunately, that's either a Wobi um, or Ramsey. I think my gut feeling at the moment is Ramsey is destined for central midfield, and we'll talk about that more. So I think it gives us a challenge as to who that player is going to be for your scenario. But I agree yeah. with the overall requirement and need, you know, nine, nine times out of ten. I just think against Bournemouth, uh, they were always going to be very open. 
because he was coming for a job interview and he was never going to be caught parking that bus. Um, so we were going to have a chance. We were going to have space to run into. And I think Arson was up for a knife fight, assuming we had the better players playing a similar <clears throat> system. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, it was a game of, of three kind of periods. Uh, the period before we scored and, and around when we scored where I thought we really were in control. And then a fairly long period where I thought the game was a battle and, and we were kind of losing the midfield battle. And so they started to get some territorial advantage. And then after we scored the second goal at about the hour mark, it was wide open after that because Bournemouth just had to go for it and they did go for it. You know, a lot of teams will opt for damage limitation. They didn't. They they went for it and it produced open, I guess you would say for the cunt neutral, uh, exhilarating, exciting football. But, it, you know, we, we were tested at times. They, they definitely had their opportunities. There was a phenomenal save from Czech on a phobie. There was the, the missed header towards the end before we scored the third. But by and large, that last 30 minutes... I thought was was just a really wide open game between two teams trying to uh, find find that one goal that was going to change the result. So, but 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 just quickly, uh, maybe you agree or don't agree. The end of the first half and the start of the second half, we were to me we were clearly back in the driving seat and and knocking the ball around for. You know, there was a good 20, 25 minutes, a bit like the PSG game again, yeah. but for different reasons. What I would say is, look, I, they didn't play us off the park, nor should they. They're born with coming to Arsenal, right? I think it's more the point that we did struggle to, to really impose our our dominance in possession on them. And I think that's because of how we set up. So, Tim, let me first get your thought on that. I mean, how does a two-man midfield control the game against a three-man midfield if you do play proper, so to speak, wide players in, instead of one of those possession-oriented players? Um, you, you don't, really, especially against a team like Bournemouth. I, I think uh, Paul really hit it there when he said um, that Arsenal was prepared for a knife fight. And, uh, and, and the, reason, the reason that really strikes um, a chord with me is because I'm going to write You've been in a lot of knife this, fights? This week. No, no. I'm, so I'm going to write something uh, this week about... Um, the, the really very, very simple idea. So, like, Alexis is this team striker now, as far as I'm concerned. That is absolutely set in stone. Um, we shouldn't move him around anymore, and we shouldn't feel sorry for anyone and accommodate this team in, in any other way. And one of the... And I kind of hinted at this earlier. One of the reasons it really, really works is is gloriously simple because it keeps Ozil and Alexis close together. Um, and that's our two best players. It keeps them very nice and close together. And it gives them the ability to swap positions. And I think, like I said earlier, Ozil, you know, not really doing the dirty work becomes slightly less of a problem when you've got Alexis charging back um, centrally because he almost kind of becomes, you know, not a complete midfielder. But with Alexis, it's almost like you've got two and a half midfielders. Um I think when you haven't got possession of the ball, which is still not ideal, but it's better. Um, and I think, you know, I, I remember loads and loads of games for the Invincibles, for example. You know, p- people understandably and correctly, you know, mythologize this team as um, this team that just was walking all over everyone and beating them 4 0 every week. And, and it really wasn't like that. There were tons and tons of games. Um, you know, in the unbeaten season and the seasons around it where the games were quite even and where we were a little bit open and where, you know, the opposition were encouraged. 
but because we had this beautiful idea of having Pires and Omri nice and close together, that was usually enough to win us the game. And I think, particularly when we're playing teams like Bournemouth at home, I think Wenger can think, do you know what, I'm, I might have to seed a little bit more of the midfield battle than I'd like, and we might not get much more than 50% of the ball. But if I've got Ozil and Alexis in central positions, playing nice and close together, um, I can probably beat most teams, particularly at home, and it will be enough. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I know the game was different tactically then, but, you know, that Invincibles team did that in a 4-4-2 formation. And, um, and so they only have ever had two central midfielders, albeit Perez kind of coming in. To be fair, everybody played 4-4-2. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. There weren't yeah. a lot of three-man midfields that they were facing. And yeah, when you have a guy like uh, Vieira in the midfield, you might yeah, as well yeah. have four midfielders. Of, of course, of course. But but that's that's kind of... And, and you know, Arsenal's shape yesterday and at times this season has been very 4-4-1-1. When you watch them line up off the ball, that's pretty much how they're set up. And in fact... Absolutely, totally it's, agree. It's more like 4-4-2 just it, because Alexis drops back that little bit more and it's almost like we've got two number 10s. I have a great screen cap and I forgot to share it. I, I, I can't remember now if it's from... I think it's from the PSG game at some point. It might be United. I, I can't remember. But it's us off the ball and we are standing in the clearest 4-4-2 setup you have ever seen in your life. Yeah, it's um, almost like 4-4-2. It was PSG. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's like Alexis drops back kind of next to Ozil, a little bit ahead of him, but it's almost like having two number 10s off the ball. And then between them, it kind of creates half a body, um, if that makes sense, particularly off the ball. And I think that's probably a big reason, you know, why he went with Jack at Anel Nenny, because he probably knew this was going to happen. And he went for the two most secure ball players available to him without Kazola, which is Jack and El Nenny, because... Um, they're both brilliant passers. Elnen is fairly low risk. Um, he's got a lot of energy as well. So I, I think there was a little bit of science in that selection. Um, if, if you're worried about being outpassed in midfield, you shouldn't pick Francis Coquelin, although Lord knows that Wenger does love picking him. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I'll tell you what. <clears throat> I think if you look at the heat maps and the pass maps, Central midfield was further from the front line than it has been all season, where usually that's a lot more compact. And maybe the idea was, with the kind of vertical passing you get from Mustafi and, and uh, Shaka, you can bypass a little bit of that midfield buildup and yeah. just yeah. fast forward to the attacking phase. And we saw a lot of that. I mean, Shaka played a lot of really nice vertical passes from deep. He had that one sensational one from you know, 15 yards deep in his own half over the top, right under the foot of Alexis for the penalty mm -hmm. shout. Um, he, he played a number of nice little slip through entry passes. But I think, you know, one of the reasons I think Shaka is kind of the Arteta of this team in terms of dividing opinion already is because he's not there to score goals and create assists. He's there to be able to maintain possession, to, to be available for his teammates and then create vertical passes that, that, advance the possession into attack and what, what was arson's phrase something like medium value passes or something like that yeah the, mo and he was the moderate value pass moderate yeah. value yeah. and he was talking about from lower to upper midfield yeah. basically connecting you know the lower midfield to the attack 
Uh, and, you know, you reference some passes. I mean, he had three, four, five up the left side, lovely curving arc passes that set off Oxlade-Chamberlain or Alexis. For our first goal, he played the the entry pass into advanced midfield and bypassed Bourne this midfield entirely. And I realized, you know, it's not a pre-assist or an assist or a pre-pre-assist, but it was what started that build-up and allowed us to get into the attacking third behind their midfield. Yeah. Um, well, well, Paul, let's let's do this. Let's let's finish off the segment on Shaka just by getting your feelings on this performance and whether maybe the worm has turned for Arson with this player. I think it's. I think it was a great performance. Uh, it's interesting that everybody saw this game differently. You know, you and I came out of this game feeling about it very differently. I think we kind of met in the middle, though. You know, still on our respective sides. Martin Keown thought our midfield was poor. Didn't think much that much of Chaka and uh, and uh, what's his face El Nenny. Uh, what's his face was terrible in that game yeah he was <laughs> hate Mohammed what's his face and then you, you know uh michael cox i read his thing i think it was on espn he thought we played very flat for this game i'm like you could say a lot of things about this game flat wasn't yeah that doesn't to seem to make sense um, <laughs> it was a very effervescent Adrian, performance on both sides yeah adrian clark's uh breakdown was entitled why did Chaka and El Nani work so well together. So this, uh, this of all games, especially you know a game we just about scraped a win on it in some ways, and yet ended up winning three one, and it felt fairly resounding in the last few minutes. It was a weird, weird game. I thought Chaka did great. I mean, his stats are off are off the charts. He had I mean, fourteen just... ball recoveries. He was ninety percent passing. He played 65 or 70% of his passes forward. I mean, what more do you want from one of your two yeah. in midfield? So shove that up your arse, Francis Coughlin lovers. Yeah, that, um, guy's, that guy's a dick. Um, so, and, he, and by the he way... He covered both halves of it. The, the pass, his passing forward was clearly excellent. His Coughlin-esque defensive work was clearly excellent. Uh, he was front-footed. He was intercepting. He was doing all those things you're looking for. He found a nice balance with... El Nenny. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I, I strongly believe Ramsey's heading back into the midfield too. Uh, All right, let, and- let's just get to it. Why? Why, why? why do you believe that? And presumably with Chaka? Uh, I would guess it's, it's with Chaka. Now, the, the only question is that where the manager... My theory... It's only pet theories, right? But my theory on Chaka... We saw a moment late in the game where he over-elaborated his uh, kind of trapping the ball in the corner. Mustafi did brilliantly at one stage against the, the corner flag and got a, a free kick instead of having to kick it in for a touch or a, or a corner to the opposition. Chaka kind of tried to do something on the, the far touch line and got done. And uh, whoever it was was Shovenham, Wilson or whoever shoved him off the ball and put the ball in for an attack. I just wonder, at the age of 23, if he doesn't regularly in training and in terms of how Arsenal's talked about wanting him to play the Arsenal way, I just reckon he's taken some time and he's young and there's a bit of decision-making to be done, but the raw material is really, really good. So are we at that point yet? I hate to say it, but I think there could be still another game or two before... Uh, Arson's fully settled that 
if this performance was every performance going forward, I don't think to be a question. But obviously, there are some questions in his game. Well, in, the in last time we at. saw him, he, I mean, or, or saw him in a significant role was in the North London Derby, and he he was our best player in the second half of that game as well, and and mostly because yeah. of his his shielding and his defensive contribution. I think yeah. we'll get a really good idea. Really, yeah, I think he's really close. Um, unfortunately, that's not what you want to hear. And I think Ramsey looks the part at the moment. Uh, in his his cameos and his, uh, his, you know, you weren't maybe too fussed on his PSG game. I thought he was bloody good. Uh, and he, he looks like he's right chomping at the bit and he's wearing his... He made a big so. difference when he came on in this game, I thought. Now, granted, yeah. he came in in a period where Bournemouth were really having to attack, but I thought he added a lot. I, I think we'll get a pretty clear picture of what the manager's thinking in terms of Shaka. Whether based on whether Coughlin starts in the EFL Cup midweek, I think there's a chance that he will, yeah. and I think that tells us, you know, he's probably now behind Shaka for the league games. But we'll see. Um, Tim, any final thoughts on on Shaka and and the future of our midfield? I, I thought it was excellent. Again, I thought it was exactly the right right response. It would have been very very easy for him to start to get frustrated, particularly after that Spurs game where he was so controlled. Um, and, you know, he played so well and he must have thought, why am I out of the team again? But it doesn't seem to have phased him um, and he's just come up. And, you know, Wenger always uses that phrase, the best place to respond is the pitch. And, uh, and I think he's done that really emphatically. And I, I just don't see how you can how you can leave him out at the moment. I think it would only be a question if Cazorla was fit, but he's not. So um, I just think in every circumstance, for every type of game, it should be Jacker plus one other. Um, I kind of agree with Paul. I'm not sure this is the, the end of it, and he's definitely in. And I, I think you're right. I think what happens on Wednesday, whoever he plays between uh, Jacker and Cockerlan will, will will tell you a lot um, about how he sees it. But I mean, I, I thought Spurs was the absolute perfect breakout performance, and Arsenal obviously didn't agree. So yeah. we can only really guess what's what's been going on there, but. Um, but he, but he we should remember it was just a, a, a was it a couple of games before that he had a performance where I mean you guys in particular and I didn't really disagree with it thought he was a bit shocking defensively so yeah. there might be some variance and we're not you know there's there's all of that time they spend in training mm. it's the only thing I can come up with because I agree with you guys if you base it on his last two outings from what we've seen. Uh, it's hard to see why he wouldn't be the first one on yeah. the sheet. Yeah, and he's um, and he's really, really improved in some aspects that were really frustrating me. You know, I was saying earlier in the season, keeps just chopping people down instead of using yeah. his body or shepherding them. He's doing that perfectly now. He he had one um, mm. one of his ball recoveries yesterday, right down below me. It was absolutely brilliant. He just stepped in between the player and the ball, kind of. Backed in, but enough so that it definitely wasn't a foul. Just got himself in, and then not only did you know did he get possession of the ball, he then turned himself out, and so the ball was on his left foot, so he could pass it straight back across the midfield, and, and that that was exactly what I wanted to see. Um, and you know, I said a few games ago, I've got a friend who who's also a Munch and Gladbach fan, and he he said to me, you know, Jacker can defend, he can do that stuff, he just hasn't done it yet, and. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm pretty convinced now. Yeah, it's definitely... I think there's clearly something that's been going on there in terms of the player the, the manager thought he was getting and 
the player he actually got. I mean, we've seen even the manager's statements on him evolve because in the early part of the season, he called him a box-to-box midfielder. And now he's saying he's not a box-to-box midfielder. I mean, And before that, there were definitely comments in which he did talk about him being more of a, you know, uh, who do you compare him to? Uh, uh, what's it? Petit. Petit, yeah. Yeah. So he, to your point, he's gone back and forward and now back again. I mean, he's been in in this position a few times. So yeah. I agree with you. Well, so I think we all agree that there's still some mystery to our midfield, but the biggest mystery now is what the hell we do with right back. And Tim, it seems that every year we pick a position and then we let all our injuries hit that <laughs> position. Um, it's right back this season. And Hector Bellerin was a massive loss, but your favorite player and mine and everybody's favorite player, Matthew Debushi, was having a great start to the game. Um, and it made me think, you know what, this is a quality player, a player who is a, a French international, and you know maybe the hunger is back and, and he's ready to battle for this position and he's, have, he's off to a good start this game. This is good. This is encouraging. And then his hamstring tore itself off his bone and ran out of the stadium. So we did bring on Gabriel, which I think tells you a little bit of what the manager thinks about Carl Jenkinson. And no matter how much we like Carl Jenkinson because he is an Arsenal fan and it's a cute, fun story – I think we can probably say he's not Arsenal quality, and the manager may agree with that. So, Tim, what do we do about right back? <laughs> um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because originally I was very, I was just in favour of keeping Jenkinson in, just because it's, you know, in terms like of for like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. In terms of quality, it's obviously a big drop off, but he does the same kind of thing, and therefore it's probably the most stable choice to make. That's kind of like saying when I'm running, I'm doing the same thing that Usain Bolt is doing. (laughs) It's not the same thing, is it? But it's it's kind of, it doesn't upset, it upsets the quality, but not the balance of the team. And basically all of the options we have, except for Debushi, um, who you'll recall a couple of podcasts ago, I was saying shouldn't be, you know, dispensed with willy-nilly because he's actually a good right back and a good backup option. Uh, And Um, can I just add, Tim, I I mean, the the period when... Uh, Theo played yes, best yesterday was when Debushi was on. He had a yeah. really good start and then you know, capped it all on the right back. But losing a good right back to play against, I think, uh, impacts our right now in the last two games. Yeah, yeah, it does. And it, it kind of shows you the problem of shifting someone out of position to play there. It, it does kind of upset the balance of your team. So. Really and it also is... kills, sorry to keep doing this, but it also kills um, Mustafi's distribution in both games, not having anybody to link up with. Yeah, although actually he, there were times where I was wondering if it was him playing right back mm. um, because he was he was certainly getting involved down there, not just in a defensive respect and an attacking respect. He was, he was getting down that line a few times. Um, but I, I think really the manager's got a way up. Do you want... Do you slightly upset the balance of the team or do you keep the balance of the team the same and have an inferior option? Because, you know, Jenkinson really has got to be thinking now. I mean, in the build-up to the game at Man United, Wenger was talking about playing Gabriel there, maybe playing Coquelin, which suggested he wasn't comfortable with playing Jenkinson. And now, you know, he's clearly rushed Debushi back. Debushi had 60 or 70 minutes in an under-23 game and he's, he's thrown him back in. And pre-PSG in his press conference, Wenger said, um, you know, I was tempted to put Debushi in the squad, but I think it's a bit too early. So he's obviously been 
chomping at the bit to not play Jenkinson, and now he's, he's you know, he faces the prospect of bringing him back in with Jenkinson knowing that the manager has no faith in him. Um, some of his comments about Gabriel as well, in terms of his um, fairly limited history playing there. He played left back for VRL, and uh, I think Wenger made some. Um, he made some allusion to Gabriel. He said he'd seen there. him play right back once, and it wasn't encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the thing is, so the the story behind that one time he played right back, it was in a Copa do Brasil final between uh, Vitoria and Santos, and the only reason he played there was because Neymar played on the left. Um, so actually, he wasn't really playing right back; he was doing a man marking role. Um, on Neymar, so none none of his. How could that you know, go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and and actually, I, I was surprised to see uh, Wenger say it wasn't encouraging because he he actually stopped him from scoring, um, which at that time, you know, was was well. That's, was that's it by still... punching him in the face or kicking him in the <laughs> stomach? Because I I could see that being in his locker. All right, so so look, I mean, it wasn't a super encouraging performance by Gabriel. Certainly, uh, in the in possession attacking. Uh, element of it and Jenkinson is a real concern I think quality wise and the manager's reluctance to use him in this game uh, both from the start and after uh, Debushi went out tells you a lot I think so then what do you think he will do and what would you do and Paul I'll give you a swing at this in just a second so Tim that would be you first we're gonna stick uh, we're gonna keep I'm... it with you because of your your uh, in-depth <laughs> knowledge of of the Brazilian league um, what what would you do, and, and what do you think the manager will do? I, if he can get Gabriel some training at right back, if I, you know, if he can work with it on the training ground and bring Gabriel up to an acceptable level, because you've also got to got to consider Gabriel. This this was cold for Gabriel, so he hasn't played there for some years, and when he did, it wasn't really as a right back; it was a, as a man marker. Um, he's coming on as a sub. Um, it's probably not been worked on in training because Jenkinson and Debushi have been there. Um, and Gabriel hasn't played since the last round of the League Cup. And before that, he's only played twice this season in both the League Cup games. So I think you've got to take some of that into account. Um, so if he can do something on the training ground in the next... Because I think we can, you know, we can assume that Jenkinson will start on Wednesday... Um, and that Gabriel will go back to centre-back. But if he can do something with Gabriel in, in the meantime, and then he'll just have to make an informed decision based on that, based on do I upset the balance but bring down some of the quality? Do I um, go with a, an unnatural right-back who perhaps would be a bit more solid? Um, I think he might stay with Gabriel um, at right-back. Okay. I'm trying to think who West Ham play on the left wing because that, that will have to come into his thinking as well. I mean, who do West Ham have down the left? And they, they have Cresswell, don't they, as a left back who's who's generally pretty good at getting crosses in. and um, is a good... Payet sometimes pops up on the left side too. Yeah, precisely. Mm. So he might, he might deduce, particularly for an away game at West Ham, he might think, well, actually having a centre-half at, um, at right back's not such a bad idea. I think he'll play Jenkinson on Wednesday and Gabriel on Saturday. The really scary option and the one that could be the perfect solution and also could be a real um, destabilizing move would be if Mertesacker is fit, move Mustafi over to right back where he's played before and plays for the national team. 
<clears throat> or has played for the national team and, and play Mertesacker and Koscielny uh, at center back. But it's just a question of, to your point, Tim, whether you want to break up a center back partnership that's been really yeah. encouraging. Um, it could be a really interesting move if you think about it, though, because Mertesacker is an excellent vertical passer. He's a great line-breaking passer, and Mustafi is a phenomenal line-breaking passer as well. And, you know, if you have Shaka in, in central midfield sort of a little deeper, suddenly you have some potentially really interesting passing options uh, and players who are really good at playing the ball between the lines vertically, and, and it could it could give us some interesting options. I mean, you're not going to probably see Mustafi overlapping the way a Bellerin or even a Jenkinson would, but he could be instrumental with some of his passing from that position. And I think he could drop in centrally to help Mertesacker a little bit as well. Not that, you know, Mertesacker's terrible or anything. I think that's that's the the question is whether he wants to destabilize it in that way. I mean, alternatively, Paul, he could move Coughlin in there as well. Um, what do you anticipate happening there until Bellerin's back? I definitely think Mustafi's our best right back in the squad, uh, currently beyond Bellerin. I don't... I, can't imagine he'd break up the central partnership for it um but we've seen in two games now what a hole in the boat having a uh, a, a non-operating right flank can be um yeah you can compensate for it elsewhere on the pitch but you're losing kind of that whole right side um you've also got the Ainsley Maitland Niles uh, option given that we have the e- EFL coming up uh midweek which was uh, didn't he play there the last time out and looked really good. So I think he's a ways off starting, but he could well be. It, it, it's going to be tough if he doesn't play in the EFL, but it might make a lot of sense to start Jenks ahead of him to give him a game so the manager can then assess in his own mind whether you know Jenks has got his head round what he needs to do and respond he can give him instructions to push forward and to tr- do certain things and see if he can you know be more positive in his play and more confident i think he'll give jenks the nod against west ham uh i mean he should know the team he's facing up against he's 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 practiced alternatively i could say guys. they know him <laughs> which may not yeah. be in our best interest either. Um, yeah. no, so, no no, thought for Coughlin there? No. Uh, I think if I was going to pick one now beyond Jenks, uh, I thought Gabriel came into the game in the second half and was not too bad on the tiki-taka and got involved. Uh, I, you know, he is, as as uh, Wenger said, he's very fast. It was almost in comparison to Coughlin as to why you p- picked him there. He's very fast. Yeah. Well, uh, why not Oxlade-Chamberlain then? Let's let's do it. You you oh, joked about it before. Let's do it. Let's yeah. go Oxlade Chamberlain. He'll overlap. I, we're all using the word. The manager has been using it for a while. The word focus. He can't. He's he's a brilliant potentially based on the little we've seen. Brilliant right wing back for ten to fifteen minutes. <laughs> uh, but you see, if I were to find out in later times that uh, Oxlade Chamberlain had struggled his whole young career with ADD, and I'm not making a joke out of this, you know, uh, we all know people who have significant ADD challenges. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's 10%, it's 8%, it's 15%, you know, it's a significant percentage. That's two guys in our team have ADD. 
if you were to tell me in later life that he suffered significant ADD issues, I believe it. I think he's got a focus issue. The manager uses the word all the time. We see that lapse. He'll do something, his head goes down. Instead of responding immediately to it, sometimes he remembers, sometimes he doesn't. I don't think you can risk that. Yeah, I, I don't fully mean we should do it. Although, look, Emmanuel Abue was a right winger who became a right back. And whatever you think of Emmanuel Abue, he was part of a back four that took us to a Champions League final. Um, okay, so, you know, I, I think we, we're not going to be able to guess what the manager's going to do at right back. I think that will remain a mystery. And as far as the central midfield, I think we're still going to see some juggling going on there. But one thing that I really do believe is that Alexis, as Tim, you alluded to, is our center forward. I thought he was tremendous again at the weekend. Um, his relationship with Mesut Ozil and, and th- that partnership they're developing is spectacular. I, I know that we we go on and on about Alexis, Um you know, on this podcast, it feels like every week now, but he is really extraordinary to watch. Would you say that he is moving into that position now? We cried out for you know the we we had Ian Wright and Dennis Bergkamp and Thierry Henry and you know Robin Van Persie. No one really wants to talk about it. And then is Alexis starting to ascend for you into that level where he's every time you you turn up for a match, he's the guy you want to watch? Yeah, yeah, I think so, and I think. Um... The time for me that showed more than any other time, including, you know, both his goals was when, you know, Bournemouth were on top um, just after they equalised. We were we were a bit rocked by it, I think, largely out of a, a feeling of injustice. And Bournemouth were really starting to get to grips with the game. But then it turned back again when Alexis smashed that shot against the crossbar. Yeah. And it was an incredible shot from when there was nothing else on. You can see him kind of his brain kind of ticking over as he's standing over the ball and he's looking in the middle and there's nobody there and there's nobody moving and everybody looks a bit, the body language is a bit, you know, and then all of a sudden he rockets this shot off the crossbar and that immediately lifts everybody. And um, it would have been such an incredible goal as well. You just don't often see players score from that kind of angle and that kind of situation because you look around, you do a freeze frame just before he shoots Every Bournemouth player is where they should be. They're all exactly where they should be, doing exactly what they should be doing, but that's still not quite enough. Um, And that's, you know, I think Wenger said afterwards something about Alexis always finds another gear um, in terms of his energy. And I I don't think he meant just his, you know, his physical energy, his, oh, look, it's Alexis, doesn't he run around a lot? I, I think he means more... You know, just as much his his psychological energy, his ability to kind of conjure something from nothing. And um, I read a piece that Michael Cox wrote today as well, talking about Alexis being our driving force. And uh, he actually said, he uses the phrase at the end, Alexis is the most natural leader that Arsenal have, Um, which is quite interesting, particularly for a British person to read, because we're always told that, you know, the guy that points and shouts a lot is the leader. Um, and to a lot of extents, that's usually true. But um, I thought it was a really interesting phrase that's not really ever used about Alexis, that he is a leader. And it's very much a leader by example. He just inserts that energy into the game um, and not just a physical energy, but an, almost like an energy of ideas. 
And you started doing a lot more pointing. Uh, 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 and maybe, well, maybe I'm just noticing that. You see it in the stadium. I'd love to get your take on it. Uh, yeah. he, was, he was organizing this defensively. And on the counterattack, we score the goal. He tells Giro, who's looking at him, not to pass to him, to pass to Ozil. You see him pointing suddenly to say, yeah. you know, he's directing. He's not only directing and organizing, he's directing play. Yeah, indeed. And and that might be, you know, he gave quite an amusing interview afterwards yeah. uh, in, in English. That might that might just be because his uh, his language skills are improving as well. Um, you know, it can't hurt to be able seasons, to communicate, but... at least at a basic level, with your teammates, right? I mean, we, we gloss over the language indeed. thing, but, it, you know, go out and play a pickup sport. I don't care if it's football or basketball or whatever it is. It makes a big difference when you can shout an instruction or understand indeed. an instruction from a teammate. Indeed, and you know, I, I think possibly in the past he's kind of got got gotten away with is not the phrase I really want to use here, but he's kind of got by with that because he's usually been on the left hand side, and Urzil speaks Spanish, and Monreal's a Spanish speaker, and Cazorla's a Spanish speaker. That like there's a lot of them in the squad, and I reckon that um, if you play on the left side of Arsenal's team, you can probably get away with you know just being a Spanish speaker. But should we call the um, left flank Little Spain? Yeah. <laughs> but now, now he's playing in the centre, and that's that's a whole different ball game because he's everywhere um, now. So now he just goes and speaks to Hector Bellerin. No, uh, but, yeah. you know, you know. But, so, he's, but isn't he's the much other much side of central. that, Tim? Yeah, I mean, you hit a brilliant point. He's he's central. He's involved in everything. We were all frustrated. I, I was quite frustrated with him in previous seasons, and it probably wasn't his fault that he was kind of in his corner on the left, pinned in, not really yeah. connected to the rest of the team. And maybe this has opened the floodgates, if you like. He can't have just learned English yesterday. No. Uh, and, so. But, you know, like I said at the beginning, it's, it's, a, it's an almost stupidly simple idea to put your best players in the centre mm. of the pitch. And who are Arsenal's best players, really? Lauren Koscielny, um, big argument for Santi Cazorla, Meza Ozil, Alexis Sanchez. Um, you put them through the spine of the team. That's that's an incredibly good spine, um, and that's you know that's I, that, it, it's just one of those. Sometimes football can be very very simple. You know, there's lots of intricate things that make up the balance of the team. But sometimes someone as good as Alexis and as energetic as Alexis should just be in the centre of the pitch. And actually, I thought his best spell in an Arsenal shirt um, prior to this one was. In his first season, Mesut Ozil got injured um, for three months mm. and Alexis started playing number 10. And uh, he was quite often playing behind uh, Danny Welbeck in a number 10 role. And I thought that was one of his best spells. Um, and, and he, he will drop at, deep. He did that and, at Udinese as well. He played the number 10 for a while. Yeah, behind Di Natale, uh, yeah. I strongly think you're onto something. He, it isn't just that he enjoys attacking and being the centre of the... He likes being connected, and it's kind of... It's opened the floodgates, kind of... He hasn't broken down crying or anything. Well, he might have, but he's broken down connecting. He's yeah. pointing, he's shouting, he's not marginalised on the left. He's less frustrated with the fact that we can't get the ball to him. He's now directing traffic and organising. Well, and yeah. so, so much of football is about where the space is on the pitch. And the fact is, whatever you want to say about Mesut Ozil, he doesn't drop deep. He doesn't. He doesn't want to come link the play. 
per se in midfield. He wants to stay in the attacking third and find a pocket of space in the right channel or a pocket of space in in the left half space, or he'll even drift out to the wing. But he stays more advanced. And if you have Giroud in the center, you know, standing at the edge of the box or even dropping deeper, that dynamic isn't as effective. But because Alexis is so willing to cover so much ground and drop deeper and carry the ball forward and make those runs all game long, it lets Messick be so much more effective with the space that he uses. And, you know, I, I just... All of Ozil's touches yesterday were on the wings. There was practically nothing in the middle. Yeah, well, and and, and not dropping deep. They're always advanced. Yep. I mean, he stays in the attacking third. And so I think it makes a big difference having Alexis in the center of the pitch willing to, to drop deep. And it creates a huge amount of space in the center of the pitch that is available for players to run into and move into, which may ultimately be where Ramsey thrives if he partners with Shaka. We'll find out. Um, let's kind of start start to wrap this up and tie it together just a little bit. I think, you know, you look at Alexis and he gets two goals, and they're two goals that really are unique to the kind of player he is because the first one's early in the game and he's front-footed when most players would be on their heels and he nips in to take advantage of a mistake by the defender and finishes brilliantly. And then in the 90th minute, you know, when, again, players could be on their heels waiting for the cross to come to where they are, he runs to the spot where he thinks the cross is going to go and beats His the defender to that around point. around the center back. Yes, goes exactly. goes from being the wrong side to being in complete and utter control of the six-yard box in the blink of an eye. Yep. And, and, it, and look, I mean, it may not have been a vintage performance in some ways, but I thought their penalty was really soft and really fortunate. Um, you know, I Nacho think... Nacho Monreal, dudes. Yeah, I, I I just don't He's see how that was a penalty. Yeah, but don't. that's two fifty-fifty penalties this time out. One the last time. Yeah, you know, I, I'm trying to up my cred in terms of somebody willing to criticize an Arsenal player. No, now, if you want to put the boot into Nacho Monreal, that's fine, Paul. You kick our players. Assist. I'm here to support the team. Lovely but, you know, player. You do you. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you know how it is. Anyway, yeah. look, we've got uh, we've got EFL Cup coming up, and and it gives us a chance to rest and rotate, which means Alexis will probably play ninety plus the the two extra time periods. Um, but all kidding aside, I think the the real sort of talking point now that's happening on Twitter a little bit. And I just want to get your thoughts on this just really quickly. In the wake of this game, there was you know obviously understandably questions to the manager about Jack Wilshere, and he's. He said, you know, yes, we're going to get a contract done, and, and that's the plan. Paul, do you want Jack Wilshire back at Arsenal? Yes, I do. My overriding feeling is I don't actually really care. He was so lost to us. Um, I want Jack to have a brilliant career, and if that's a Bournemouth and wherever, so be it. I'd far prefer Jack to become a brilliant player wherever. Do I want him back at Arsenal? Damn right I do if he has a good season and he plays well. I mean, he's a, he's a real talent. Yeah, but. I mean, I mean, the question then becomes, we know Jack isn't someone who, from a from a ego and mentality standpoint, wants to sit the bench and be a squad player, and certainly not at the age he's moving into now, and he values his role in the England team. Are you willing to bring Jack back to Arsenal if it means we have to find room for him on a regular basis, much in the way we're sort of feeling pressure to find room for Aaron Ramsey? Um, well, I mean, that's what a top-level manager has to manage. Uh, do I want him back? Yes. Does it guarantee him anything? No, he'll have to compete. But if he wants to play for any big team, and if he has a big season at Bournemouth and then maybe one more good season, say, at Bournemouth, and wants to move on to 
City or Chelsea or United, he's going to have the same problem there too. So uh, from his side, that's what it's like at a big club. From our side, we've got to be able to manage big players when we're in yeah. three or four competitions. We already have that problem. Bring it on. I think the other danger, too, is no matter what you think of him as a player, any scenario where Jack Wilshire is an integral part of how we're building the team always now, unfortunately, comes with the inherent risk of a guy who could miss an entire season. And I know that's unfair. He's stayed fit so far this season. He's got to prove it. He's going to have to do it all season before you can even start to entertain the idea that he's someone you could build around, regardless of what you think of him as a player, just in uh, terms of his availability. The manager has dropped in the point about playing once a week instead of playing Saturdays and yep. weekdays. I don't don't know what point he was making, but it might have been a slightly defensive why Jack is staying fit and why it's the right thing for to be him to be at Bournemouth for those saying why isn't he at Arsenal. It's a fair question. Um, Tim, your thoughts, do you want him back at Arsenal? And if so, what role do you see him having? Um, i give it a couple of months before I really make my mind up on that. If he stays fit and you know his performances look like they've been building um, and gradually getting better, if that pattern holds, then yes. Um, Is he the heir apparent to Santi Cazorla if he's someone who can be depended well, on to stay fit? Here's, here's the other thing as well. Santi Cazorla's contract is up at the end of the season. Aaron Ramsey's is 18 months away, which from our point of view basically means it's up in the summer because we'd, we'd have to would have to cash in really so if we lose those two players um and jack we're suddenly looking quite light in the area of the squad we seem to have the most players in so that yeah we'll just clone Cochrane well. and play two of them yeah Cochrane <laughs> will still start ahead of chaka even in the summer <laughs> so then it, it becomes a question of numbers and you know i i still think jack made a bit of a mistake by going to bournemouth just because i think Arsenal's midfield is such a lump of squidgy clay at the moment and potentially both of the midfield slots are up for grabs. Um, if Cazorla's not, you know, if Cazorla's got this Achilles problem, which apparently everyone at the club knew um, that, that that was a flight risk, which is why his contract hasn't been renewed to this point. So uh, I think he made a mistake from that point because I really think this is the time to stake your claim in the Arsenal midfield. However, but he's um, happy. That, yeah, yeah, and and you know, like he. So I, I'm looking at from the point of view as an Arsenal fan. Yeah, you know, yeah. Is he going to come back here and be a success? You know, maybe that's not what he wants, and I'm I'm not convinced it is um, from a, a lot. And I'm not talking about that. I want Bournemouth to win thing because that's just absolutely means nothing, and it's silly that anyone got upset about that. Um, <clears throat> but I think a lot of his comments have been quite non-committal. Um, about Arsenal, I think you're right. I think he is enjoying himself, and that, that's why I thought um, that this this spell at Bournemouth would see him move away. And I, I think that might be his decision more than Arsenal's. Um, I do think that he might think, "Oh, this isn't too bad actually, playing for a team slightly lower down like Bournemouth, where we play once a week, and I'm always guaranteed to play, but we play good football." Um, you know, this this is all right. That will still get me in the England team because England are shite. For um, a season or two kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. Maybe after that he'll take a view. A bit, a bit like, do you remember when Lasana Diara left us to go to Portsmouth? Mm. And it was um, it was very much, I, I'll stay here for a year because I want the next big move. And he got Real Madrid, so fair fucks to him. He, he pulled that <laughs> off quite nicely. Um, so Jack might be thinking the same thing, I think. I, 
I I think that's the decision he's going to make. I think if at the end of the season Bournemouth still want him, um, that he'll think, yeah, yeah, this isn't bad. I quite like this. And then maybe next year or uh, the year after, you know, and, and particularly the premium for English players because of the, the squad rules, um, you know, you, you can, it, it does make it slightly easier for an English player to move to one of those bigger clubs. So, I <clears throat> From my point of view, it will depend on what happens in the next few months, um, and I accept things are looking quite positive for him at the moment. But as to what role he would play, it, it totally depends um, on what happens next. You know, if in a couple of months Aaron Ramsey and Granite Jacker have made a brilliant midfield combo, um, then you know, for me, he would either have to accept that perhaps wide playmaker role, which I really think he could have played this season, by the way. Um, the Awobi role, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, he'll have to be kind of first reserve, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to give you the counterpoint to his, maybe I'll just stay at Bournemouth because it's nice and fun here, is 60 grand a week at Bournemouth and fun versus 100 grand a week at Arsenal and sitting the bench may still yeah, be the deciding factor. Yeah, he was miserable. Factor. He was miserable. I don't know, man. I, I, I've had money and I've not had money, and I think having money is better. You know, he, think, he has money either way. It's just whether he drowns in it or it's up to his nose. I'm still in that cynic point with football where I think at the end of if the he, day, a golf and a wage. Long, okay, but if he takes a long-term view, uh, he sees Bournemouth helping his career by keeping him fit, keeping him in the spotlight. His next move, you know, it, it's not the move you get this year. It's the move you get in a year or two. He gets his England place. He might become England captain, blah, blah, blah. Depends on how you calculate that one. There mightn't be that much in it in the in the end yeah. when you're fecking miserable and you know Welbeck comes back, so there's no wing spots. You got Santi comes back fit. You got Chaka. You got Ramsey, uh, and he might not like that second midfield spot in terms of the role within our team. He this is you know Bournemouth set up to be a, a showcase for Jack. I. I think he's loving it and he's happy. All that partying in London may be more secondary than primary. In other words, it might be caused by his miserableness in life that he wants to go out with his mates and have a few drinks. Um, he might be just loving this and saying, screw it. I don't knock it for a year or two. And this has been The Psychiatrist's Couch with Jack Wilshire. <laughs> we'll be back next week when we put Olivier Giroud on the couch and ask him what it's like. To never start for Arsenal. Um, okay, let's leave it there. And, and by the way, Paul, what, what was our bet? 10 starts or 12 starts for Giroud in the league this season? Five. Was five? Yeah. I really said he wouldn't even get five? Yeah, I know. I Tim, did I say f- no? Five I said or seven, it was 10. and then you went back to five. I went to five. It was that few. Well, I'm, I'm right on pace because yeah, even if we play the 70 <laughs> game season, 70 times zero is still zero. So. Fingers crossed. Anyway, uh, Paul's on Twitter, pausing in my pants. Uh, he's been doing a little blogging again lately, so you should read that too. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. And Tim is on Twitter at Stilberto. He, is, uh, he has little nubs for fingers because he writes so much, so you should read all the stuff he writes. Thank you, Tim. Pleasure. Yes, pleasure indeed. My name is Elliot Smith. Please block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Strongly recommend it. Uh, we will be back after the EFL Cup game to discuss Granite Chaka's performance. I kid, I kid. Um, and then uh, it's West Ham away at the weekend. And, uh, you know, hopefully keep the momentum going. The good thing is, look, you may not have liked Chelsea beating Spurs, but 
there's kind of a, a four-team race at the top forming, and I'd like to think that maybe Spurs and United and the teams down there are not cut adrift per se, but we're starting to see a, a second tier, a second class of citizens, which would be just fine with me. Um, and we can focus on the top, which is where we want to be, obviously, because in football, if you're at the top, you win the title. Um, there'll be more insight like that on the next podcast. You're going to want to tune in. Anyway, and you uh, gave and- me shit for being a psychologist. Look, man, I cut my finger open right before this podcast. I'm bleeding all over the microphone. There's a chance that my computer didn't record any of this. We'll see what happens. In any case, uh, thanks for listening. Give us five stars and then write nasty stuff in the review section. We'll talk to you after the podcast.